0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au Today we'll be reading Psalm 39 and it can be found on page 492 if you have one of the church Bibles. Psalm 39, for the choir director, for Jodethon. A Psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me As I mused, a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days, so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. Hear my prayer, Lord and listen to my cry for help do not be silent at my tears for i am here with you as an alien a temporary resident like all my ancestors turn your angry gaze from me so that i may be cheered up before i die and am gone this is the word of the lord
1: see Good morning, uh, my name is John, if I haven't met you before, and uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 39, so if you have a Bible, it would be helpful to keep that open. I want to pray before we start. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, thank you for its truth, its relevance, its power, and we pray that you would open our hearts to it today, that we might be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, Amen. So over January and February, we're doing a Psalms of the Summer series where different speakers from Red Door will be taking us through various psalms. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we looked at the evidence for God's goodness in the past, the importance of remembering God's goodness in the present, and the practical utility of trusting God's goodness for the future. But we didn't really stress test the idea that God is good and put it through the ringer to see if it stands up to scrutiny. And so we're going to do that today. Because when you ask people who aren't Christians, what's holding you back from checking out Jesus and going to church? One of the common responses you get is the problem of evil. And it's often an extreme case, like, how could God have let the Holocaust happen? Where was God when the Jews were being killed by Nazis? In 2008, a film called Defiance came out, starring Daniel Craig, which is about a Jewish resistance to the Nazis in Eastern Europe during World War II. And In the movie, there's a scene where some of the Jews who are left get together and pray in response to the war that's happening around them. We're going to watch a short clip from the movie where they pray, because it's a prayer that takes the problem of evil very seriously. Thanks, Phil. Merciful God, we commit our friends Benzion and Krensky to your care. We have no more prayers, no more tears. We have run out of blood. Choose another people. We have paid for each of your commandments. We have covered every stone and field with ashes. Sanctify another land. Choose another people, teach them the deeds and the prophecies, grant us but one more blessing, take back the gift of our holiness, amen. It's quite chilling, isn't it? Choose another people, take back the gift of holiness. Now, when I first saw that, I thought, whoever the script writer was who wrote that, they didn't know anything about biblical faith. There's no way that a believer would ever pray something like that. But then I read Psalm 39, and I realized that God actually recorded a prayer like that in Scripture. Look at the last verse. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I might be cheered up before I die and am gone. What kind of prayer ends like that? A number of Psalms have deep laments and significant low points, but they always end by lifting their eyes to God in hope, except for two Psalm 39, Turn your gaze from me so that I might be cheered up before I die. And Psalm 88, Darkness is my only friend. And if you're wondering how a psalm that ends like that made its way into the Bible, you're not alone. In fact, the most common question that commentators and theologians ask about this particular psalm is, what is it doing in the Bible? Why would God allow this in his book of prayers in scripture? One commentator, Derek Kidner, answers it by saying, the very presence of such prayers in scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. You see, unlike every other religion and every other worldview, the God of the Bible doesn't stand aloof from our suffering or distant from it. He listens to us when we cry to him. He feels our pain, he comes into our darkness without trivializing it or sweeping it under the rug. And this is utterly unique to Christian faith. Because every other religion says, if you're suffering, then it must be your fault. You must have done something in this life or in a past life, and that's why this is happening to you. And so you have no right to question God about it. And atheism says that you can't cry out to God because there's no one to cry out to. It's only Christian faith that invites us to cry out to God in our darkest moments. To be honest with him and real with him about our struggles and difficulties and doubts. Because it destroys the myth that says, if I just do the right thing and tick all the right boxes, then God will bless me with a nice, tidy life when nothing goes wrong. No. Psalm 39 blows that myth out of the water. Because even though David says in verse 1, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue, by the end of the psalm, his suffering is so great that he asks God to turn away from him that he might cheer up before he dies. This shows us that times of spiritual and personal darkness can last for a very long time even if you're praying and reading the Bible and living the Christian life. Because even though God is cry, even though David is crying out to God and trusting in Him, emotionally, he feels rejected by God and crushed by God and has no sense of God's goodness or presence with him at all. See, while the Bible says that God is working all things for the good of those who love Him, It also says in places like Psalm 39 that it's possible to go your whole life and never have any idea what that good purpose is. Sometimes we see how God uses suffering for good with hindsight. But sometimes it feels like our darkest moments can drag out forever. Without any of the answers or the comfort that we seek. What then do you do in those situations? How do we experience God when we're in our darkest moments? This psalm shows us how to experience God when we're confronted by the darkness of the world, how to experience God when we're confronted by the darkness within our own hearts, and how to cry out to God in our darkest moments. How to approach the outer darkness of the world, the inner darkness within, and the cry from our darkest moments. Let's look at the first one, the outer darkness of the world. Come with me to verses 1 to 6. Psalm 39 from verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good, and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me. As I mused, a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. Lord, reveal to me the end of my life and the number of my days. Let me know how short-lived I am. You indeed have made my days short in length and my lifespan as nothing in your sight. Yes, every mortal man is only a vapor. Certainly man walks about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they frantically rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, here we see David wrestle with two different aspects of what you might call the external darkness of the world. The first in verse one is the presence of the wicked. As long as the wicked are in his presence, his pain is intensified, verse two. If he speaks, they'll almost certainly attack him, but if he doesn't speak, then verse three, his heart grows hot within him, and as he thinks about it, it burns like fire. He wrestles with both the pain of staying silent and the injustice of what will happen if he speaks. Because knowing when to speak is a balance of risk. In the presence of the wicked, it's not safe to speak. But it's even less safe not to speak because of what will happen if no one does. And so David is compelled to speak. And when he does, he speaks about the bigger picture. In verse 4 he says, Lord, reveal to me the end of my life and the number of my days. Let me know how short-lived I am. You indeed have made my days short in length, my lifespan as nothing in your sight. Yes, every mortal man is only a vapor. The first aspect that David wrestles with is the presence of the wicked. The second is the brevity of life, which renders everything as a vapor, like a mist that appears and then vanishes before your eyes. Once you realize that we're building buildings that will eventually be destroyed, healing people who will eventually die of something else, and training people who are eventually all going to die, it only adds to the darkness of the world, which is already frustrated by the presence of the wicked. We're fighting an uphill battle only to see everything that we've worked for roll back down the hill, so we have to do it all over again. According to verse 5, Everyone is but a breath, literally hevel. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And this is why so few people follow the logic of atheism to its conclusion, of nihilism, the view that there's no meaning, no purpose, no objective good and evil. It's too dark and depressing. When people find out that there's no point to what they're doing, then they stop doing it. And so the idea that there's no point to life itself is something that we avoid at all costs. And so we busy ourselves with work and pleasure and creature comforts so that we don't have to think about it. But David says, I can't. How can I pretend this isn't true? It keeps breaking in on me. How can we fail to see this? Verse 6, certainly a man walks about like a mere shadow, Indeed, they frantically rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. You know, if you read books on burnout and how people work themselves into the ground, one of the things that they say is that it's not hard work alone that leads to burnout. It's hard work plus the feeling that you're not actually achieving anything. If you're working hard, but you're achieving your goals, then you're much less likely to burn out But if you're working and working and working and none of it is producing any fruit or achieving the things that you're working towards, then it's very likely that you'll experience burnout and run yourself into the ground. Even worse than rushing around is rushing around in vain, working and working without any purpose or direction to it. And yet, all of us rush around gathering possessions, or in our case, increasing the size of a number that's stored on a computer in a bank, without ever knowing who will eventually get it. Nothing that we do last, we're constantly having to contend with the presence of the wicked as well. And so even if you're living a godly life and striving to put sin to death and to love your neighbors, the darkness of the world can be absolutely crushing. This completely destroys the myth that says, if you just do the right thing and tick all the right boxes, God will bless you with a nice, tidy life where nothing goes wrong. No. The darkness of living in a fallen world is way too pervasive for that. And yet, that's not the only darkness that David wrestles with. After wrestling with the outer darkness of the world, he turns to the inner darkness within. Point two, the inner darkness within. Come with me to verses seven to 11. Psalm 39 from verse seven. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I'm speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me. I fade away because of the force of your hand. You discipline a man with punishment for sin, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Every man is only a vapor. As well as facing the darkness of his circumstances, David also faces a spiritual darkness or an internal darkness where, even though he puts his hope in God, verse 7, he has no sense of God's presence or goodness or care. He feels that he's drowning in his transgressions, verse 8. He feels like God has made him the taunt of fools. In verse nine, he says to God, you are the one who's done this. In verse 10, he says, remove your torment from me. I'm overcome by the force of your hand. Now, if you're facing external darkness in your circumstances, but internally you feel that God is with you and you can sense his presence and his love for you, then it's much easier to handle the difficult circumstances. The sense of God's presence gives you a strength and a courage and a refuge in the storm which helps you persevere and to face difficult circumstances forthrightly. But if you feel that God has abandoned you, or if you feel that God is crushing you, then that inner darkness only compounds the darkness of your circumstances and makes it infinitely worse. This was David's experience in Psalm 39. And it's one that's recorded countless times throughout the Psalms. And so it ought to recalibrate our expectations. If you think that the Christian life is just happy songs and feel-good messages, then you're not going to be prepared for times of spiritual darkness. This is showing us that sometimes our experience of God can be one where we feel spiritually dry, or in the dark, or where God feels distant, where our prayers seem to go unanswered. Sometimes you can be praying to God and pouring your heart out to Him and seeking Him in His Word, and yet it can feel like God has abandoned you or is even crushing you. Why would God allow us to experience that kind of inner personal darkness? The answer is in verse 11. David says, You discipline a man with punishment for sin, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Now, the word translated, what is precious to him, is a word that means to treasure or desire. It's saying that when God rebukes us or disciplines us, very often it's to free us from our treasures, our inordinate desires, the things that we're tempted to turn into idols. When things are going well, you don't even see your idolatry, let alone repent of it. It almost always takes times of darkness and distress to first show us what we're really living for, and then secondly, to move us to cling to God so that we're able to let those things go. You know, in the book of Job, the accusation that Satan levels against Job, and by implication against all of humanity, is does Job fear God for nothing? Isn't it because you've put a hedge around him and blessed the work of his hands that Job comes to you in obedience? Satan is essentially saying that these so-called righteous ones don't really love you, God. They're just trying to marry you for your money. And so when times of darkness and suffering and distress come into your life, it's almost as if you're faced with the question, is your relationship with God one in which you serve him, Or are you basically trying to get God to serve you? Are you trying to marry God for his money? Because if you are, then your motives and your goodness and your relationship with God are only skin deep. God wants a much deeper relationship than that. One in which you love him rather than the things that he can bless you with. How then do you forge that kind of relationship in the furnace of suffering? Practically speaking, how do we turn to God in our darkest moments, rather than allowing ourselves to be overcome by them? Point three, the cry from our darkest moments. Have a look at the last two verses. verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a foreigner residing with you, a temporary resident like all my fathers. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. Notice that, contrary to Satan's accusation against humanity in the book of Job, David actually turns to God even when he's not getting anything out of it for himself. There's no hedge around him. God isn't blessing the work of his hands. In fact, David is driven to the point of thinking that life would be more enjoyable if only God would depart from him. And yet, instead of walking away from God or shaking his fist to the heavens, he clings to God tighter than ever and says, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears. You see, this is the difference between grumbling against God and the complaint of the psalmists, which you see again and again throughout the book of Psalms. What's the difference between grumbling against God and complaining to God? Grumbling is when you shake your fist at God and say, how could you do this to me? How could God let this happen? And you start to question God's goodness. But the complaint of the psalmist is, Lord, even though this feels like I'm being plunged into darkness, both in my circumstances and in my soul, instead of questioning your goodness, I'm going to question my presuppositions. I'm going to continue to cry out to you even if it's as a foreigner and a temporary resident, which is the language David uses in verse 12. Instead of clinging to the idol that's been taken from them, they cling to God instead. And that process is what ultimately makes the psalmist unshakable in a world that's falling down around them. Because if you hold on to God and cry out to him, rather than grumble against him and question his goodness, then when the darkness lifts, and it will, you'll find that the suffering will have turned your heart into something wonderful, like the pressure that turns a lump of coal into diamond. You'll have a fortitude and an unshakability about you, which can only be forged in times of darkness. You don't learn how to pray in the easy times. It's only the hard times when you cry out to God from the heart, not just the head, that you develop a deeper relationship with God that makes you into someone great. So when you're going through suffering, don't waste your tears. Pour them out to God and let the experience deepen your relationship with Him. If you've ever seen a vine dresser pruning a vine... To the untrained eye, it looks like he's attacking the vine in a hundred places with cruel steel, decimating its branches and its fruit that haven't even begun to grow yet. But the trained eye knows that the vine dresser hasn't taken off anything that wasn't a loss to keep and a gain to lose. The wise eye knows that the productivity and the life of the vine have actually been enhanced by the pruning. What does a coach do with an athlete? He trains him. He disciplines him. Puts him through the paces. What does a refiner do with gold? They plunge it into the fire to melt away all of the impurities. So In every case, something's put into their hands and their job is to bring out the beauty and the potential and the greatness of it. And what do they do? They burn it they discipline it, they stretch it, they run it. To the ignorant eye, it looks like they're trying to kill it. But the wise eye sees that in every case, this is how they bring out its potential. When you're going through suffering, don't waste your tears. Pour them out to God. Let the experience deepen your relationship with him. Now, this is very countercultural, both for religious people and secular people. Because the religious mindset tends to suppress our feelings and make sure that you don't say anything that's irreverent or improper to God, ever. And so, when suffering comes, it must be because I've sinned, or I wasn't trusting God, or I didn't pray the right prayer. It's always my fault. And so, they internalize it and beat themselves up about it. But the secular person, or the irreligious mindset, does the opposite. Instead of suppressing their feelings, they just vent them to everyone. They're always talking about their feelings as if they're an infallible gauge of the truth and the most important thing to consider in every decision. The religious mindset tends to suppress our feelings of frustration and anger, and the irreligious mindset tends to vent them to everyone. But this is different. Instead of suppressing our feelings or venting them to others, David pours them out to God. He's honest and raw and doesn't hold back how he's feeling. But he doesn't let go of God either. He holds on to God and says, hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. The religious mindset only ever looks inward. Instead of looking up to God and crying out to him, they internalize it and suppress all their feelings of frustration and anger. And the irreligious mindset only ever looks outward. They're always talking about their feelings and looking for validation from other people. But this is neither. It isn't looking inward for justification, nor is it looking outward for validation from others. It's looking upward to God and saying, verse 7, Lord, my hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. When you're going through times of darkness, both in your outward circumstances and in your inner personal life, this is the only mindset that will enable you to grow through the darkness and let go of the things that you need to let go of. Because if you have a religious mindset that only ever looks inward, then you won't be able to put sin to death without putting yourself to death. When you fall into darkness, you just blame yourself and put yourself to death by your own feelings of guilt rather than putting to death the sin that's dragging you down. And if you have an irreligious mindset that only ever looks outward, then you'll never even see your own sin, let alone put it to death. And so you'll continue to suffer at the hands of an invisible enemy. You have to be able to hate your sin without hating yourself. Because if you don't hate your sin, you'll nurture it and allow it to grow and it'll create darkness in both your circumstances and your soul. But if you equate your sin with yourself, such that hating your sin means hating yourself, then you'll never be able to put it to death without putting yourself to death as well. You have to be able to pray the words of verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. They're two different things. David is not his transgressions. He wants to be delivered from his transgressions. In order to do this, you have to see that your sins and transgressions are killing you and that you're valuable enough to be saved at the same time. Because sin really is the cause of both the outer darkness of the world and our inner darkness within. And yet you're so loved and valued by God that he sent his one and only son to save you from all of your transgressions. How can you hate yourself when God loves you so much? Do you realize the length that he went in order to save you? Jesus didn't just come into the presence of the wicked, he was counted among the wicked and killed as a criminal so that one day we could finally be free from the presence of the wicked. Jesus wasn't just overshadowed by the brevity of life. His life was cut short so that our days would continue forever. And while you and I and David often feel forsaken by God or even crushed by the blows of his hand, Jesus didn't just feel forsaken or crushed. He was forsaken by the Father and crushed for our iniquities. David's cry from the darkness was ultimately answered by Jesus' death on the cross. This is how God delivered him from his transgressions. This is how God removed the torment from him, verse 10, by putting it on Jesus instead. Even though David felt like a foreigner and a stranger to God, on the cross, Jesus actually became a foreigner and a stranger to the Father so that we could be adopted as his children. Unlike every other religion and every other worldview, this psalm encourages us to be real with God and to pour out our hearts to Him, even if it sometimes feels irreverent or improper. But do it in front of the cross. Because there's no better answer to our Christ in the darkness than to see Him being plunged into the darkness so that we could be free from suffering and evil forever. Let's pray. Will pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for the honesty of Psalm 39, that David didn't suppress his feelings or simply vent to those around him, but instead poured out his heart to you, which you then recorded for us in Scripture for our good. Father, we pray that when we're going through times of darkness in our circumstances or in our personal lives, that you would remind us of this psalm and of its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel. We pray this would move us to cling to you rather than our idols and to put our sin to death without putting ourselves to death since Jesus died so that we could live. Amen. We're going to spend some time reflecting on what we've heard from God's word this morning. Uh, As we do that, um, Joe and Becca and I are going to play a song that's based on a similar psalm which also wrestles with crying out to God in times of distress. This song is called Hear Me Lord. And it's based on Psalm 86, which says, Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Consider the complaint of the psalmist expressed in our next song, Amen Lord.